Turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles in front of you, it's on page 903. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about one of the things we did this summer was we did uh, some hikes with the kids. And one of those hikes was a trail near Mount Baker. Um, if you're familiar with those, we did the Bagley Lakes Trail and the Chain Lakes Trail, and they create a nice little loop up in the mountains there. And there was a time where we were in this meadow right off the trail, and from this meadow you could see what I believe was Upper Bagley Lake and a stream that ran through the meadows, and then the hills and the mountains rose up around us. And if you listened and you looked closely, you could see small waterfalls and mountain streams coming down into this valley. Well, that's a nice description. Let me show you a picture. This is one of the pictures that we took there. You can see the meadow. You can see the contrast of the green of the grass with the rock. You can see the size of where we were. You see, if you look closely, you can see our kids in the foreground there. That tiny blob of red is Adam. <laughs> Some of you after service, you can come up and you can get a little closer look. But Anyway, with a picture, you can better see just the, the grandeur, the size of this place. But... If you really want to see this place, don't rely on my description, don't rely on our nice picture, you really have to go for yourself. And we all know this is true, that to really understand, to really feel the grandeur and the size and the immensity of a place like this, you have to see it for yourselves. That you can appreciate a written description, you can like a photo to give you a more clear vision of it, but if you really want to feel the awe of the moment, you really have to be there and to see it for yourself. And it's this truth that, that nothing can live up to seeing something in person like this. It's that truth that I want to use to understand our text in John 17 today. At the center of this text is understanding eternal life with God. And one of the unique contributions of these verses as they pertain to our hope in Christ is at the center of it is this idea of one day we will see our God in his full glory face to face. So if you're following along in the outline provided in your bulletin, you're going to see our big idea this morning is this. 
the person who knows Jesus through faith has the guaranteed promise of eternal life, seeing God in all his glory. So let's begin verse 24 of John chapter 17, and we're going to look at seeing the glory. Follow along as I read. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We're getting to the end of Jesus' prayer is found in John chapter 17. And just by way of reminder, John 18 begins the crucifixion and resurrection narrative. These are some of the last words of Jesus. And we've looked through these last weeks of how he prayed, what he prayed for, what was on the front of his mind as he was thinking about the end. And I want us to begin by seeing how his followers are described here. Look at what it says in the very first part of 24. Father, I desire that they also, his followers, whom you have given me. There's a wonderful description of God's sovereignty and our salvation, of the security that we have in Christ, that we can be defined in terms of God's gift to Jesus Christ. And with this comes the idea of once we are His, once we are given by the Father to the Son, we are safe and secure in our salvation. He doesn't pray for those who were smart enough to say yes. He prays for those who have been given by the Father to the Son. That we, who by faith have placed our trust in Christ, we belong and are held fast by Jesus. But it's at this where we turn to how our future hope is described. Look again at verse 24. That his followers, the ones whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And part of understanding Jesus' language here is to understand that previously and throughout this last part of the book of John, Jesus has spoken about going back to the Father. So we saw in verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus, throughout this chapter, has spoken about, I'm coming back to the Father. I'm going back to heaven. And so it follows, then, that the prayer request of Jesus is that his followers may be with him where I am. That those who have placed their faith in Christ will one day be with Christ forever. We've seen this before in the book of John. So you have John chapter 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
As Christians, we believe in an eternal life that reunites follower and Savior. We don't believe that we just fall asleep or that we go into nothingness. We have a promise that our Savior who loves us, the God of the universe, will be with us for eternity. And this is built upon in the next phrase where I want to spend a good majority of our time this morning. So again, look at verse 24. They may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays that his followers would see his glory. And again, as we've seen throughout this part of John, we get a picture into who Jesus is, where we see that he is loved by the Father before the foundation of the world. This is another taste that we've seen of how God exists as Trinity and how Jesus is fully God. But as I said, I want to focus on this idea of seeing Jesus' glory. And why would he word it that way? So we need to go back to the Old Testament. We need to go back to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 and 34 are some of the most important chapters in your Bible about understanding who God is and our relationship to God. But at the end of Exodus 33... Moses makes a request of God. He says this. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God responds in verses 19 to 23. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that even seeing God's back, Moses' face is so bright, he has to cover it in front of the people. But it's very clear here, God says, you cannot look on my face. You cannot see my full glory because it would destroy you. There's a very clear demarcation of what can happen and what cannot happen. It is a picture of the separation we have between us and God because of our sin. That a sinful man, even one of the best men who has ever lived, Moses, would be annihilated by the very glory of God. And it raises a question that runs throughout your Bible of how does an unholy, unglorious people be in relationship with a holy and glorious God? 
And then we come to the beginning of the Gospel of John. So keep in your mind Exodus. You cannot see my face and live. You cannot see my glory. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To stretch my introduction of looking at the mountain, in one sense, Jesus' life is a human picture of the glory of God. We see this in Paul's writing in the book of 2 Corinthians, who again connects it back to Moses. Let me read you from the book of 2 Corinthians. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Paul continues what John had said in his prologue to the gospel. But that we see a picture of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. We see the glory of God in our salvation, that through Christ sinners are reconciled to God. But in one sense, it is an incomplete glory. Because the disciples could look at Jesus' face. But it was because he had become incarnate. And it points us to a future hope. To a future glory. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There is a future promise that one day those who have trusted in Christ will be face to face with the full glory of their God. We see this theme continue on in the book of Revelation. This, these are from Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 23. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The ultimate promise of heaven is that there's no just merely looking on the back of God. There's no hiding in the cleft of the rock while God shields us with his hand so that we are not consumed by his glory. But there is a glorious future for the believer in Christ. And while the new heavens and the new earth are completely lit by the glory of God. God's glory is so great, he replaces the sun and the moon. And that is the glory, the perfect glory of God that awaits the believer in Christ. No longer does anything come between us and the Lord. Our sin no longer hinders that relationship. There is a glorious future that is perfect beyond all imagination. There is a promise that as we see eternal life described in God's word. We see even the word pictures of God's word. We see some of my favorite descriptions where the authors have to defy the natural world, the laws of the natural world, to get us to even begin to understand my favorite, Revelation 21, 21, where a single, a city gate is made from a single pearl. It's impossible, but that's the language we must use to even get a beginning of a picture of the glorious eternity we have in Christ. But just like the picture I showed of the mountain and the valley, all of these pictures are preparing us to see it for ourselves. That because we belong to Jesus Christ, we have the promise that we will stand in glory. That we will see the God of the universe face to face. And the awe and the grandeur and the immensity we will feel with every fiber of our being. We will be with our God where death is no more. Where death has been killed. Where sin eradicated. And we see our God face to face. Jesus ends the prayer by providing more detail about how this hope 
is ours. How do I have the hope of this glorious eternity? And we see in verses 25 and 26 that this glorious future is ours through the knowledge of the Son. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. First thing I want you to see in this part of the text is the title given to God the Father. Here he is referred to as O Righteous Father. He is the God who cares for us. He is not some aloof God who just exists out there and we are merely his playthings. The God of the universe is the Father who cares for us. But while he cares for us, he is also the righteous Father. And as this pertains to our text today, I want you to see that when God is righteous, when he is perfectly good and perfectly just, and when we are talking about how do we have the hope of eternal life, if God is righteous, that means the way of salvation never changes. God never moves the goalpost on us. And he can be trusted that when he says, it is through my son that you are saved, that you can trust that through Jesus you are forgiven of your sins, reconciled to God, and have the final guaranteed hope of eternal life. When we understand God is righteous, we can have confidence when we believe what he has promised. And the way of salvation here is very clear, that it is a saving relationship with God through knowing Christ. You see all the repetition of the word know there. Again, there's a difference between knowing about something and knowing someone in relationship. That's the idea here, that we know Christ in the sense that we have a relationship with him. He is our Savior. And that Jesus recounts how he has made known the will of the Father, made known the way of salvation. And we know that through the scriptures and through the coming Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to reveal the Father. Again, it's important to point out the connection between knowing God in relationship and growing in our relationship through knowing more about God. That they work together. You think of any relationship you have, there is a relationship there, and as you grow in your knowledge of that person, it grows and matures that relationship. And this is the work of Jesus. He creates a relationship between us and the Father, but he continues to reveal about the Father so that we can mature in our relationship with him. 
And all of this is done in the context of the love that the Father has for the Son that spills out to us. Look at the end of verse 26. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God loves you. And because God loves you, he sent Jesus to die and rise again so that if you repent of your sins and place your trust in Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life that's described here. It is because God loves you that he has done this. It is an eternal, unchanging love. A love, as we saw earlier, that existed before the world began. It was the same in eternity past, it is the same today, and it is the same into eternity future. A couple points of application as we end this morning. You can know the end of your story. We read descriptions of eternity. We can picture in our minds with the various word pictures we have in God's word. But one day, if we belong to Christ, we will see it for ourselves. If you are a believer in Christ, one day you will see your God face to face. There's literally a light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) At the end of our lives, we enter into the glorious, perfect presence of God. We will not have to turn away in shame, We will not have to veil our faces. But we will stand face to face in all of the glory of God. Number two, because God is righteous, he has made known to you the way of eternal life. And because he is righteous, that will always be the way. The God of our salvation is a righteous God. It will never be another way to God. It has always been through faith in Christ and it always will be faith in Christ. God is trustworthy and Jesus is the Savior that never fails. And so if you have placed your trust in Christ, you can live with certainty that one day you will see your Savior face to face. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through knowing Christ in faith, we can have the guaranteed hope of eternal life. And that one day, our sin will be annihilated, 
and forgiven. And we will stand face to face with you, our God and our King. And because you are righteous, we can trust those promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite those who are helping with communion to come forward at this time. Probably not good to go back to my introduction one more time, but it's fitting here. We read about the crucifixion. We read about Jesus' death for our sins. But God also gave us a picture of that death in communion. That when we eat the cracker, we remember the body of Christ in our place as our substitute. And as we hold and drink grape juice, it is a picture of the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins, paying our penalty, paying for us. And so, because communion is a picture of the death of Jesus for our sins, we need to, as we take communion, prepare our hearts. The Bible tells us to examine our hearts before the Lord so that we do not take communion in an unworthy way and face the discipline of God. So as we pass out these elements, we'll pass them out at the same time. As we pass those out, that you would take time to examine your heart before the Lord that you would take time to confess sin, that you would make plans to confess sin to others if that is what you need to do. But that you would take of communion with a pure heart. If you're a believer in Jesus, we invite you to take communion with us, even if you're not a member here. But if you're not a believer in Christ, we ask that you just allow the elements to pass. And if you'd like to know more about what it means to be a believer in Jesus, I would love to talk with you after the service. As we take these elements, hold on to them. As we take them together as a sign of our fellowship with others, with each other that we have through our fellowship with Christ.